0: Does God care about us as individuals? And does he care about us trusting in him to the point that it shows itself in obedience? And does he care for us to know about the journey of walking with him in this life all the way unto death? I want to answer that question to you from God's word. And the answer to all those is yes. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, as you're turning there. And, the, and if you don't have a Bible, use the one that's provided for you there in the pew. It's on page 413 414 of the Pew Bible. The book of Ezra is a return story that recounts the events that made up the first and second returns to the land of Israel by a remnant of Jews who survived the Babylonian captivity of, uh, of Judah. Many, uh, by means of this particular historical situation, we are intended to learn how people in the believing community can conduct their lives in a way that pleases God. There's much the book of Ezra can teach us about how to live as pilgrims and sojourners. Ezra is one of the great spiritual leaders of the Old Testament. His name means Yahweh helps. He was used of God to lead the Israelites back to the promised land, this at least the second wave. So much like Moses did previously, in fact, the return to the homeland from the Persian captivity has been called many times a second exodus. The book of Ezra tells the story of of those two returns. first was led by Zerubbabel in chapters 1 through 6. And then as we left off in Ezra, beginning in chapter 7, from 7 to 10 is the second wave. uh, So the first wave led to the rebuilding of the temple. The second one leads to uh, to rebuild the spiritual condition of the people. You can think about the blocks in that way. Uh, Ezra's return... To Jerusalem, along with some of the priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and temple servants, was given in summary form at the uh, beginning of chapter 7. Since that account, we've been examining the fine print now, details that add the you know, significant uh, composition of, of what accompanied Ezra on, the, on this four month journey to Jerusalem in the height of summer, by the way. Uh, this would have been a dangerous journey, as you would imagine. So let's look at the text together. I'm going to start there in verse 1, chapter 8. Hear now God's word. These are the family heads and the genealogical records of those who returned with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Now you can see that long list of names. Skip down to verse 15. I gathered them at the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there for three days. I searched among the peoples and priests, but found no Levites there. Then I summoned the leaders: Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Elnathan, El Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Ashulam, as well as the teachers Jorib and El Nathan. I sent them to Ido, the leader of Keshifa, with a message for him and his brothers, the temple servants of Keshifa, that they should bring us ministers for the house of our God. Since the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us zeriba a man of insight from the descendants of Melai, Mal- Malai, a descendant of Levi, son of Israel, along with his sons and brothers. Men, plus Hashabiah, along with Jeshiah, from the descendants of Rai and his brothers and their sons, men. There were also 220 of the temple servants who had been appointed by David. and The leader's the work of the Levites all were identified by name. Verse 21. I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us, our dependents, and all our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey. Since we told him, the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. So we fasted, pleaded with our God about this, and he was receptive to our prayer. I selected 12 of the leading priests, along with Sherebi, Ashabiah, and 10 of their brothers. I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles. The contribution for the house of our God the king, his counselors, his leaders and all the Israelites who were present had offered. I weighed out to them 24 tons of silver silver articles weighing 7,500 pounds 7,500 pounds of gold 20 gold bowls worth a 1,000 gold coins and two articles of fine gleaming bronze as valuable as gold then I said to them you are holy to the Lord and the articles are holy. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the Lord's house before the leading priests, Levites and heads of the Israelite families in Jerusalem. The priests and Levites took charge of the silver, the gold and the articles that had been weighed out to bring them to the house of our God in Jerusalem. We set out from the Ahava River. On the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, we were strengthened by our God, and he kept us from the grasp of the enemy and from ambush along the way. So we arrived at Jerusalem and rested there for three days. On the fourth day, the silver, the gold, and the articles were weighed out in the house of our God into the care of the priest Meramoth, son of Uriah. Eliezer, son of Phinehas, was with him. The Levites Jezebed, son of Jeshua, and Adiah, son of Biniwai, were also with them. Everything was verified by number and weight, and the total weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had returned from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, along with 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering for the Lord. They also delivered the king's edict to the royal satraps and governors of the region west of the Euphrates so that they would support the people and the house of God. This is God's word. What a report. What an accounting given here. Aren't you glad I didn't read all those names to you today? Wow. This passage is a wonderful recounting of God's faithfulness to those who diligently seek him. To the original audience... They were shown what it looked like to seek to glorify God in testimony, seek Him in prayer, strive after Him in obedience, and learn to wait on the day when God would finally deliver them from sin and death through Messiah, Jesus. Verse 23 captures the posture of Ezra in this chapter. Look at at the posture of Ezra in verse 23. So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this. About what? About all of this. Like Augustine's Confessions or the autobiographies of George Mueller or Spurgeon, Ezra can write about himself in such a way as to draw more attention to God somehow, right? Than to himself. He wasn't trying to photobomb the Lord. He was telling the story. He was getting out of the way and saying, God did this. It's the Lord who answers prayer. And then, back then, as much as in our own experience, we can almost sense the, the sigh of trustful relief as Ezra, Ezra pins the words here. One author put it as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray, wrote Martin Luther. So this passage can be, you know, just blown over so quickly but it actually does some interesting things it it pushes back against the idea that we're to focus on loving and promoting ourselves you follow me this passage has no category for us living a you know a a selfie-minded philosophy we're to focus on loving and promoting ourselves This passage also does not allow for the idea that you can ignore God in this life and think everything will be okay as long as you just distract yourself long enough and do enough in yourself to ease your own mind. This passage won't allow that to stand. This passage also goes against the idea that the journey of faith is not worth it. It is worth it. Here's the central point. It's there for you in your bulletin. Scripture teaches us To seek and prioritize the Lord in all things. Scripture teaches us to seek and prioritize the Lord in all things. Therefore, let us live more mindfully towards the Lord or towards God. Let us live more mindfully towards God. More mindfully towards God. If you want to change, if you want, if you say, I don't like the word mindfully, think attentively, think attentively to the Lord. That's what I'm talking about from this text. Well, let's think about how this text helps us with that and why we should live more mindfully towards the Lord. Number one, give glory to God. Verses one through 20, give glory to God. I don't know about some of you, but I think some of you can connect with me on this. I find it so satisfying to watch these videos that people put up where they, you know, take a dirty car and transform it and clean it. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I gotta say, some of those cars are just shameful. Wow, what what was going on in that vehicle? But it just there's some heads out there. You know what I'm talking about? Or they properly, you know, they take over a property. You ever seen the guys with the lawn mowers and the weed eaters? They go to those places that are overgrown. I just it's so satisfying to watch them put those places back in order. I love the process and, and the finished work. Um, and some people love accounting. They love the work of accounting and putting the numbers in order. Ezra was one of those kinds of people. The reporting of the names feels like an, an enthused record, record keeper here. So if you, as you read the, those lists of names, you guys, that's the sense of it. There's excitement in this reporting. Let me tell you. And he lists out all the accounting. And I love when he gets to the end. And it's all recorded and accounted for. He, there was a, uh, the Lord just blessed him with that here. And it's not just the accounting that excites me, but the one who produced this is what excites Ezra. And so verse 18 guides the section where Ezra says, it says since the gracious hand of our God was on us. That's, that's the whole tone. Of the, of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So often you hear the hand of our God, and it's right here again in chapter 8. And so let me ask you this Do you ever take stock of your blessings the way, uh, and blessings the way that God has preserved and provided for you over the years? You ever just take an account of those things? You don't have enough time today to write them all down if you sought to do it today, of all the ways as you look back of how God, how God has provided and cared for you. And it's an exciting exercise. I I was doing that last week, reflecting on 2022 and seeing the ways that God had provided for me and my family. And what it does is it engenders faith and it will fill you with more worship. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to do as we read the passage here this morning. What other purpose is more grand and important for us than giving glory to God? There is no greater purpose. There's no deeper purpose. That's what we were made for was to glorify God and thank Him. Over and over. Uh, and Ezra repeatedly in, and in different ways wants to ponder the work of God and, and, and the work of God and, and, and the things that God gave him to do to give him glory. First subpoint glory and preservation. Glory and preservation. Verses 1 through 14 gives the record of God's faithfulness in preserving these names and families. Lists like this remind us that God works through real people through their distinctive gifts and personalities. And so this remnant is carrying the whole weight, by the way, of God's purposes. And ultimately to them and from them is the one to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea will carry through the New Testament's longings, where God assembles His people. He assembles, he assembles His twelve tribes, the elect described along with a great multitude in Revelation 7. And in this group of returnees, The pilgrims headed for worship, we we get a foretaste of the greater assembly to come. John said in Revelation 7, "After After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude. And look what he says, though. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb." These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God is showing us here and he's telling us in the revelation he's going to bring his people home and he's going to bring and we're going to know their names and salvation belongs to our god salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in the lamb jesus christ alone don't feel that you're so separated from this text oh no we're part of a greater assembly a greater greater pilgrimage greater sojourning on the way to glory so ezra never allows us to forget that these are real people involved in At every stage, each name and unnamed one was li- was a living person who took a risk to ste- step out and make this trek to Jerusalem. So the list distinguishes between priests and noble families, lay or ordinary families, and Ezra draws careful attention to Aaron's lineage to establish legitimate priests. Um, Hatush is mentioned in verse two, um, also in, in First Chronicles chapter three, verse twenty-two, as a member of the royal line, the Davidic line. And so almost lost, almost in the detail, is the thread of God's covenant with David, to whom God said, "I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." God's promise is sometimes found in the details, and it's found here. He has not forgot his promise of a Messiah of Christ to come. And the covenant made with David's house, a covenant that will eventually yield Christ Jesus though clouded and almost entirely obliterated as a consequence of the Babylonian exile, still remains. Ezra says, hang on, don't forget that promised seed all the way in Genesis, that promised one who would bring rest, that promised one uh, to David's lineage, we've not lost sight of him whatsoever. So the exile itself was one of the darkest in Israel's history. God's mercy and light shines bright right here. Out of darkness is light right here his promises never fail. So God has provided, God has chosen and preserved a merciful, uh, mercifully a people unto himself. And Ezra wants the reader to give God glory. It was the hand of our God. God has preserved not just people, but a people for his own purpose. Look at our own church history, how God has uh, uh, preserved us here at La Plata Baptist Church. I thank God for his grace in the lives of those who stayed when things got tough. Some of the members who are still here, uh, who were here when I first took the job, I'm so glad you stayed. Many others who have stayed here over the years, I praise God for your resolve and for his grace in your life in preserving you. It is heartbreaking when we see folks drift away from Christ. And it's glory to God when we see people finish. And, st- and continue to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Implied in this lift of, list of names is the assumption, I know you're like, Pastor Garrett, you're getting a lot out of these names. I'm scratching the surface, beloved. In the list of names, is the assumption that many of those returning are descendants of those who have been part of the first generation who had come to Jerusalem nearly 80 years before. Don't miss this detail. This is pretty cool, actually. And it's also convicting. The connection... The assumption is many of those returning were related to the first generation. And we have no way of telling how conscientious these families had been in carrying out Moses' command to teach their children God's word in Deuteronomy 6. But plainly, some at least, must have caught Ezra's vision, and this would have hardly happened if... Uh, to you know, to mix the metal, if the soul had not been prepared already, somebody had been doing ministry with these fam- within these families for them to make that track home. Do you follow me? And this is an encouragement. Who'd have thought, right here in this list of names, there have been enc- a family application for us right here, church. This is both an encouragement to keep on training each new generation, even when the fruits are not obvious, and also a warning, especially for the heads of households not to neglect the vital task of passing on the faith to our children and grandchildren by the grace of God. Parents, ask your children where they would be as it pertains to the local church when you are older. Begin that conversation today. Where are you going to be? Will your faith be your faith? Are you still hoping to somehow coattail on me? This has got to be your faith. Teens and children, if your parents... We're not here. Would you be following Jesus? How do you know? What resolve has God placed in your own heart? If you're not thinking about this already, you should. You should not wait till you're somehow trying to adult and then trying to figure that. Start thinking about that right now. Maybe today you, as a child or teen, need to repent of your self-focused life that's in opposition to God. By the way, adults do this too. Maybe today you need to hear afresh that you are headed for eternal exile in hell unless you yourself repent and trust in Christ. Each new generation needs to hear afresh the life-changing word. Parents and grandparents, let's be resolved to expose our loved ones to the gospel and to God and His word. Our children who are sinners like us do not need more entertaining programs and more activities as the first priority they need more truth our children need the truth every day they need truth not here only on Sundays but throughout the week in the home I pray parents you are speaking God's word in the house as well but let me add something here that I read this week I was not expecting to make this section the longest part of my sermon but here we go The bonds of family lines are strong, but in a culture like our own that we live in today, where the breakdown of marriage and family has been its chief characteristic for the past half century, we may find a passage like this where the heads of the household, the men, the fathers, were listed first. We may think that's patriarchal. That's antiquated. What's up with that? I mean, doesn't this passage appear to be counterintuitive? And certainly countercultural today to the modern hearer, to the modern society. Isn't that strange to the modern society? I mean, how 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 offensive this might be. But like it or not, friends, God has created men uniquely and he's created woman uniquely. And one of the things he's placed on the man is headship and authority in the home. When God comes to the garden, who does he go to first? He goes to Adam first. And one guy noted. It's at least food for thought that church strategy often appears in reverse order, concentrating on the children, the tail end of the family, to the neglect of the head of the family. And God help us, friends. That's why I try to, anytime I talk to a young family, I always say, look, um, you, you don't need to start by choosing a church based on the entertaining programs for your children. All oh, the children will like it there. What do children know? We have to teach them everything. No offense, kids. You don't know what to eat. If we left it to yourself, you'd eat garbage all the time. You'd watch garbage. Like, like children make terrible decisions a lot of times. Get the right. Daddies, get your heads right in the house. Go to a church where fathers will be convicted and lead with conviction. Amen? Amen. Oh, my goodness, we need to see men race up in the church, uh, starting at a young age, who have conviction. Men, do you have an interest in the spiritual good of your brothers here? You should. It shouldn't just be me who's worried about brother so-and-so who's not here. Or the elders. Dads, are we calling our sons to be leaders as men in the things of God? Young men, look, look, look up for a moment. What kind of head of the family will you be one day in your own house? Young men, look at me. What kind of man will you be in your home? Will you be the kind... Um, that a woman will detest because you're lazy and you have zero convictions about righteousness? Or will you be the kind of man who has zeal for the, for the Lord and, by, and has it by His grace? God, help our young men. And God, give us men in this church to give them that example. Oh, bro, oh guys, I, I, I can't tell you enough. Um, one of the most important things you can do, gentlemen, is, is develop biblical convictions now. Because if you don't, you'll attract different kinds of people in your life. And gentlemen, I'll tell you straight up, you're going to attract the wrong kind of woman to your life too. Be a man of conviction. I give glory to God for the ways he continues to raise up young people by grace to repent and follow Christ. We should be praying and laboring for that end, for his glory, to, to, pre, to preserve this in our, in our midst. 2nd subpoint: glory and provision. Glory and provision. Verses 15 through 20 highlights Ezra's activities of the gathering, searching. He's uh, his, his, his gathering, searching, sending, and finally appointing qualified priests because God was gracious to provide. And we see the wisdom in his approach to glorify God in God's provision. Verse 15, a three day camp is mentioned there. Ezra stopped and took stock of things. Just a whole summer right there, just to take stock. And verses 15 through 20 record his results. At, by, there by the canal, and, and before they trek out, he takes three days. Let's take stock. Let's let's get a hold of things here. Let's take uh, a stock of what's going on here. And do we have what we need? And are we ready to start worship when we get there? So careful, careful numbering ensured that no one got left behind. Uh, numbering revealed the non, uh, that none of the sons of Levi's were of Levi were present uh, for the Levitical priesthood. So there's just important things going on. So he shows shows us. Uh, um, uh, God's grace here in providing for them because realizing that our hearts are, un- are unprepared is a potential disaster. And that must be addressed before embarking on any spiritual enterprise. And so Ezra shows us here that we need to stop. We need to take count. We're going to seek the Lord and his provision. And so his concern for details shows him to be thorough in his preparation, wise in his planning, accountable to God and his stewardship of God's provision. So what areas of our life, we should be asking, do we need to show more preparation? What are you going to do today about about that so you might get better at honoring the Lord? Maybe it's in your spending. We all have been there. Maybe it's in how we use our time. Maybe it's hospitality, maybe it's evangelism, but let me encourage you all to take stock of what's going on in your life and see where Christ is, your, is being prioritized regularly and faithfully in your life. In general terms, only the sons of Aaron were to assume the role of priests, and all other Levites would, be, would have the religious functions there, though technically they would, also, they would not be priests, but Levitical priests. Ezra needed to secure more authorized workers for the temple is what I'm saying. They had to be from the family line that God's law had established. You know, you feel bad for him. Hey, okay, he's taking these lists, right? He's like, we've got this. We've got Where are the Levites? We have no Levites? We we got to have these guys. And so, you know, sometimes when, 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 the, when this, uh, and, and it wasn't like there wasn't some that existed there in Persia. They did, but they weren't forthcoming. And and so, volunteers are not forthcoming. And so, he begins to add a little pressure. You look at there in the text, he sends nine leaders plus uh, two men of learning to persuade some Levites, um, uh, here referred to as temple servants, to come with them. And so, his strategy then was to send leading men to add community pressure and two men of insight to add that diplomatic pressure. And so scholars translate the men of insight by the term of men of learning or teachers or interpreters of the law like Ezra himself. And so he sends these guys out. So Ezra acknowledges here that though he himself exerted much effort in preparing for the trip, he says, we did all this preparation. The end result, look at verse 18, is due to the gracious hand of God. We work and God works through us. That's tremendous. That's what we read about this morning. My dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, Paul said, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. It does make you think about uh, how Ezra would convince a group of men to leave their relative life of ease, in the present situation to return to the more demanding requirements of a strictly enforced temple liturgy. How did he do that? Well, we have to give the credit to God. God must have worked this out in their hearts. I mean, how do you describe getting church members to sign up for nursery work? I can't convince anybody to do that. The Lord puts that on their heart. Some of you maybe feel that this morning. Amen. I hope that you will respond to Daniel. Friends, we can trust that they heard the call of what But even more so than that, they heard a call of what was greater, and that is giving our lives to serve God. What does it profit a person to gain all of Persia and a life of ease and lose their own soul? So, beloved, let me ask you this. Are you thinking about what it will cost you to follow Christ? Have you waited out to see that not following him will cost you all of eternity? Some of you need to hear that fresh call this morning. To, de- to deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow Jesus. So God provides. So church, are we praying for God to raise up what we need here? And let me just highlight, hasn't he answered so many prayers here in the life of this church? Oh my goodness, he has. All that to say, give glory to God. Scripture teaches us to seek, to pro- seek and prioritize the Lord. Therefore, let us live more mindfully towards God. Number two. Live truthfully before God. Live truthfully before God. Verses 21 through 30. Focus in on verse 22. Look at verse 22. It guides the section where, where Ez reveals his motive for not asking help from Persia. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey. Since we told him the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. So he didn't just proclaim the grace of God. He preached the wrath of God. He lived in the tension of God's love and God's light as we should live. So if we're going to live truthfully before God, how do we do it? Number first up point here, stay before him in prayer. Stay before him in prayer. 21 through 23 shows Ezra's preaching, his fasting and praying for God's provision. You see that, right? The journey to Jerusalem was more than 1,000 miles, and the returning exiles carried significant amounts of treasure, as you can see, as I read earlier. Um, can you imagine what this caravan looked like? Um, and despite the danger of attack, which we know is referenced in verse 31, Ezra refused to ask the king for an escort, arguing that to do so would demonstrate a lack of trust in God's providence. It's interesting, he, was, he said, I would be ashamed to do that. Scripture speaks often of unholy shame, you know, and on occasion here of a holy shame. We should be ashamed of our sins. But here he says he was, he was uh, as if quick to blush with shame, having proclaimed his faith. He's been pre- Ezra's been behind the scenes talking about God, talking about God's work, talking about God's hand to Artaxerxes, and proclaimed his faith in God's ability to protect him. So he was embarrassed to ask for human protection. wouldn't have been wrong for him to have it. The king offered it. Something's going on here where he's been, he realizes, this time, since all this talk's been going, and I've been telling you about the trustworthiness of God, we're going to set out and trust it. He's led us to this point, and he's going to bring us all the way home. He had to now... Not just talk the talk, but he had to walk the walk. Sometimes, friends, we need to be reminded of that. We, we can sometimes talk a lot about God and his sovereignty and those kinds of things. But we are slow to walk in them. Ezra arrived at his decision through not just a whim. Look at verse 23. He arrived at his decision through a three-day season, of a session of prayer and fasting, reasoning his way to this conclusion. It wasn't like he just went by his feelings. He prayed about it and fasted for three days. He presented the journey to the king in a manner that was intended to stri- demonstrate that this is it, the superiority of God over idols. I was reading this week in James Montgomery Voices, Foundation of the Christian Faith, and he told a story about uh, Harry Ironside where one man had heard him preaching the gospel and said, I'd like to debate you. And he said, okay, I'll show up to the debate, but at least, I need you to find at least two people whose lives have been changed, whose, whose sins have been defeated in their lives by your uh, atheistic and agnostic worldview. Just bring them and show me how they have had victory in their life. And I will show up with 100, and then we will have the debate. He was putting, He was, what Ironside was saying was, my trust is that my worldview, which is the view, worldview of the Bible, has the power to change life. God's word has the power to change lives. And Ezra is standing in that confidence. He is not timid. About the power of God to change lives and to bring forth what He desires, so He talks about prayer and fasting, are served as aids in the reassurance of God's guidance and blessing. Scripture records that self-denying concentra- con- that's what it is self-denying consecration concentration on God often are, are are preludes to major initiatives on the part of the church in church history. But one from the Bible is of the onset of European expansion in the New Testament in Acts 13. The fast is not an end in and itself, but an opportunity for the people to look at the text, humble themselves before God, ask for his protection on the oncoming journey. And so the fasting and humbling are, were a demonstration of their dependence on God, their recognition of their vulnerability and total dependence on God. So he puts the matters into the hands of the Lord. And so fasting prepares a person for action and allows for concentration. Let me say that again. Concentration on fundamental realities. So I, ask, I want to ask you this, friends. Do you see the value of getting alone with God? Do you see the value of getting alone with God? If you're weighed down today, let's Let God's word freshly remind you to break away from your devices and from noises and people and go seek him in prayer. And come back tonight and get encouragement to pray with the church. We don't break away. Let me say it like this. When we don't break away to focus on God, It means we're doing the opposite of the text here. Instead of humbling ourselves, what are we doing? We're being prideful. We are prideful not to pray and to seek God's hand. You understand that, right? Not to seek His rule over our lives. Not to give Him our life and our resources freshly every day. It's arrogant for us to do that. It's humble for us to concentrate on Him and seek Him in prayer to repent of our sins before Him, to seek His his wisdom. We live like the world does in blind pridefulness, assuming that we are in control and that everything will just work itself out when we don't seek Him in prayer. I got the day, God, I got it. Do you really want to say that? But our actions, function; we function that way in pridefulness when we don't break away and spend time in prayer. Amen. Amen. Hang on. We act in pridefulness when we don't break away in prayer. Amen? Let's try again. Let the amen sound from his people again. We operate in pridefulness when we don't step away and spend time in prayer. Amen? Amen. amen? amen. Okay, just want to make sure we're all in agreement. All right, Ezra is clearly unafraid to bear bold witness to the whole truth about God, to approach the God whom he believes in is for him, and to appeal to God as one who listens to his prayer for safety. So the phrase of a safe journey in verse twenty one is literally a straight way, a cleared path. The phrase you you probably recognize that obviously from Isaiah, especially chapter forty, preparing the way of the Lord. And here again the new exodus motif is is put for us in picture in order to underline the Lord's endorsement of this enterprise. And the Bible tells us that Ezra is not, though, finally the the true trailblazer, is he? But God is. And namely, the way God brings us home is through Jesus Christ. You see, friends, you and I could never get to God. We are sinners. We would find too many things to fall into and are trying to make our way there because we're distracted, because we're naturally inclined to disobey him. And we are all... In our flesh, in our own natural sinfulness, headed for destruction. But God sent his one and only son, who's truly God and truly man, to live the perfect life of obedience as a man and to die the death as a man that we could never die and pay, and pay a payment we could not pay. In Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross, God laid on him the sins of any and all who would ever repent and believe. And he raised Jesus from the dead to show that he accepted payment for our sins. Well, friends, God loves you. He's, willing, He's uh, willing to forgive you today if you can hear me. If you can hear what I'm saying, if you have ears to hear, God loves you and He's willing to forgive you. If you put your trust not in Ezra or not in someone else, or especially not your own good deeds, which are no good deeds before the Lord, but to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. And he will forgive you and cleanse you. Jesus is the true trailblazer. He's the one who makes the path for us home. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You've got to come to Christ. When we take time to put, beloved church, let me speak to you now, when we take time to put God first in any endeavor, we are preparing well for whatever lies ahead. Too often, don't you know that too often we pray, you know, glibly, superficially, Serious prayer, by contrast, requires concentration. It puts us in touch with God's will and can really change us. Without serious prayer, we reduce God to a quick-service pharmacist with painkillers, as one author put it, for our every ailment. That's all we pray about. God, you're my quick-service pharmacist. We need to spend more time with the Lord. Here's just one practical thing you could do. As you seek Him in prayer... Read your Bible and note his attributes. Uh, pick up a, a good theological book like, uh, like Concise Theology by J.I. Packer and just think on God's attributes and, and pray to God in light of his majesty and power and watch him transform your mind and your heart in prayer time. Just something practical. It wasn't in the manuscript. I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay, 2nd subpoint. take care to obey him. Take care to obey him. After praying in verses 24 through 30, we see how Ezra then made the steps of selecting, weighing, consecrating, and commanding proper care of it all. Tells us how important it is that God's people be very responsible in the handling of finances. So here we see stewardship on display. That's why we read that in the service earlier this morning. It gives us the reason we should take care because of the holiness of God. Look at verse 28. Why do we want to exercise careful stewardship? Why do we want careful people counting offerings? Why do we want to present a, um, a budget and, 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 and exercise particular rules in the life of our church? Why do we have an audit committee? Why do we do all these things? Because of the holiness of God. Verse 28. Holiness is an attribute of God that sets Him apart from all others. No one is like God in kind. No one is like the Lord. He's holy undefiled, unlimited, and unmatched, and by extension of anyone or anything belonging to him, especially priests in this context who were consecrated, and temple articles, all these things belong to him. Ezra's strict command arises from the spiritual threat that that contact with the profane uh, um, uh, would uh, would, uh, uh, inflict upon what is set aside for holy. And so think about this. These articles and these priests are set aside for holy usage in the temple. You get the picture? Let's consecrate these things unto the Lord. And so we come to Paul's theology by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians. And he says to those those of us who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price, Jesus Christ and his blood. So glorify God with your body. So we don't just want to steward things in our life. Well, we are called to steward this as holy unto the Lord. We care to to obey God with our very lives because they've been set apart to him. That strikes us in the heart when we give in to gluttony, to drunkenness, to self-harm, to sexual immorality, and many, many other things. We are to be holy because God is holy We as a church know that one of our most critical witnessing tools is to be holy. Amen? Amen. Scripture teaches us to seek and prioritize the Lord. Let us live more mindfully toward God. Number three, reflect on the kindness of God. Reflect on the kindness of God. 31 through 36 is the summary of God's strength and provision from beginning to end here. That's all it is. It's him just, yeah. God's hand was on us. The journey. That long journey. Summarized in two verses. In 31 and 32. Every danger. The hand of God was on his people. Through every danger and toil. God heard their prayers and showed his faithfulness to his covenant word of promise. And beloved, he's going to do the same for all of us who were in Christ. So don't lose hope. God's going to bring his children home. Some of you feel like you may not make it because of life's disappointments. But God says, look to me. Look to me. There's so much that happens here. The, The worship that takes place. The sacrifices that are offered in praise to God. The thanksgiving. They were filled with a sense of God's goodness to them. And they worshiped him with all of their heart and soul. Friends, this is, as I've been telling you this entire sermon, there's something greater than this arrival. This arrival is pretty fantastic and fabulous when you think of all that they carried with them and they had an account for all of it. There's one that God reveals that's going to be greater than this one in the new heavens and new earth to his bride. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away, says John. How is this possible? Through the blood of the Lamb. Through Jesus, our great trailblazer. I mean, you see, it, you see him foreshadowed in the, in the offerings that are made, in the sacrifices that are made. The sin offerings, Jesus is the fulfillment of these offerings. He's the once, He was the one given once and for all. The true sacrifice has been made for us, and we will stand washed in the blood. Some of you don't that 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 image is, is striking to you. What does it mean to be washed in the blood? It means to be justified before God. We are justified, just as if we had never sinned. God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us because our sins have been credited imputed to him to be washed, to be cleansed means to be made righteous because of Jesus death for you on the cross the wages of sin is death but the gift of God of salvation is, is through Christ you cannot improve on that, you cannot improve on Jesus so we look at the text, he weighs out Everything, Ezra, everything's counted for. He instills in them a sense of, of mission and gravity. They were to be responsible. And if we re- as we reflect on God's kindness to Ezra, there's a coming a day when we'll all, we'll see the ways, we'll, we'll recount the ways, the millions and billions of ways God has been so kind to us in his glory. We won't be counting articles. No, no, no. The Lord's going to show all the wonderful things that He did with, with and through us. Friends, I just hope we're adding to that list every day, that day. We're yielding our lives to Jesus. Does God care for us as individuals? Clearly. Does He care about trusting in Him to the point that it shows in obedience? Obviously. And does He care for us to know about the journey of walking with Him in this life all the way into death? You bet. You bet that He does. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, our our mouths will be filled with the words of testimony like Ezra's. The hand of our gracious God did it. And we're going to lay everything down at your feet and rejoice in your kindness to us. It is indeed so sweet to trust you at your word, to rest upon your promises. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.